0: If you've been around GCA for any length of time, you know the next two people you're about to see. You're probably friends with the two people you're about to see. Barney Johnson goes way back to the earliest days of GCA. In fact, GCA would not exist today had it not been for his kindness and generosity. 21 years ago. I had a surgery that tried to kill me, and I was laid up for months, and Barney Johnson drove up from Alabama week by week to stand here and preach in my absence just to keep GCA going. So we owe a great debt of gratitude to Barney, plus he's just my really good friend. I can't tell you how many times he and I have gotten on the phone, solved all the world's problems, and all we needed was for the rest of the world to just pay attention to us. And we could have made the world a better place for us to live in. So Barney will be up here in a moment doing scripture and prayer. And then David Morris. David has been around GCA since its inception. David along with Elder Ward, officiated my ordination, Cinco de Mayo, 2000. So it's been a lot of years ago. David and I are great, great friends. I won't repeat our history, but he and his wife, Terry, just returned from globetrotting yet again. He just got back from Egypt, and Terry just got back from Egypt. David went on to South Sudan, and then came to Smyrna, Tennessee. So, you know, globe trotting. <laughs> exactly. Moving on, Moving on up. That's exactly right. David is just such a longtime friend of GCA. He's going to be preaching to us this morning. And I told him last night that just last week we had finished the book of Revelation, and he's planning to preach this morning from Revelation chapter 1. So we're starting again. So I just wanted to introduce both of these men to you. I love both of these men. For any of you who have not met either of these men, make sure that you do before the morning is over, and then you will love them too. So everybody who is currently GCA, this is David and Barney. David and Barney, this is everyone.
1: Hi everybody. Hi. <laughs> it's good to see everybody. It's been a, been a minute. Yes, it has been. Scripture this morning from John 6 chapter beginning at the 22nd verse. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John 6 beginning at verse 22. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the signs, but because ye ate and filled of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endureth to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set uh, his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as is written. He gave them bread from the heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I send to you. It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and giveth life to the world. Then said unto him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whosoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whosoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet not do believe. All that... The Father gives me will come to me, and whosoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but do the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me, that I should lose nothing, that of all he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for the day. We thank you for this time of worship, Lord. And Father, we ask that you be with us now in this hour, that you bless Elder Morris to bring us a good word from you, Lord, that you anoint him with preaching power, Lord, and give us ears to hear, Father. Lord, we can't worship, we can't do anything unless you're in the midst. And we pray you be with us this morning. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he did for us. And down on Calvary, you've been satisfied with his offering and raised us from the dead. Raise him from the dead, Lord. We pray your blessing on GCA, on Pastor Jim, Lord, that you make this congregation flourish, Lord, and be a shining beacon to your free and sovereign grace. We thank you for all things. It's in the blessed name of Jesus Christ we do pray and believe. Amen. 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 Amen.
2: honor to our great and worthy God who alone is worthy of all glory and I magnify him Father Son and Holy Spirit and the Trinity of his blessed and sacred persons what a hymn and what a God oh hallelujah how great is our God holy Holy, holy, and that I, a worm of dust, should be able to praise him is a mighty work of sovereign grace. I bless him and honor him today. I'm so grateful for his kindness to privilege me to be back here at Grace Christian Assembly. It's good to be with you, my brothers and sisters. Always enjoy your pastor. Beloved friend of so many years now, it's great to renew fellowship with him. It's good to renew fellowship with you. I'm glad that on this occasion, my wife, yes, I do have one. I've not, <laughs> been, I've not been lying to you all these years. Some of you knew that. Jim did for sure. Megan, I guess, and James, but Tom, you've seen her too. Uh, but, but many of you are not, and she's here. Jim saw her coming in and gave me the notice. And we're glad that she's here and a good friend of hers from our area, now living in Clarksville, is with her, Kathy Harris. We're glad Kathy could join us this morning. I'm so thankful again to be with you, and I'm trusting that God will be pleased to honor himself and bless his word to the good of our souls this morning. I, I will be, as our brother has already told us in, Je- in Revelation chapter 1. He was sharing with me last night as we talked together that he finished the book of Revelation last Sunday and he was glad that he had a break before he started something else. I looked at him somewhat sheepishly and said, brother, I was planning to preach tomorrow morning from Revelation chapter one. I didn't know you'd been there. Do You think that'll be all right? He said, go right ahead. So maybe it will be a synopsis for you this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 1. I will not be doing the whole book, God willing. But we do want to look together at this portion, and I'd invite you as we look to God's Word. I'm going to read chapter 1. I'd invite you to follow along with me in reading that chapter as we look together to God's Word this morning. Revelation, again, chapter 1. Your Bibles may have flipped open there anyway this morning. After about a year and a half, there we read in the words of chapter one of Revelation, verse one: "The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his prophets, thing, excuse me, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ." And of all things that he saw, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Revelation, (laughs) which are in Revelation, excuse me. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna. And under Pergamus, and under Thyatira, and under Sardis, and under Philadelphia, and under Laodicea, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the se- in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto a son of man unto the son of man, excuse me, clove with the garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with the golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like a fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the seven excuse me, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. We trust that our God will be pleased to add His blessing today, His stamp and seal to His Word as we read it together, think together about it. May we just pause before Him again in prayer. Father, we honor You in the worthy name of the one whose revelation we read in these words We pray as we look to thee that you would in his name be pleased to bless thy word, to honor thyself, to exalt thy son. Father, we know that you have given us your word of truth and that we are by it able to learn of thee. And we pray that we might even today be granted to learn more of our worthy Savior to be given, Father, to love Him more, to live more for Him as we live in these days. Father, we glorify You for what You'll do among us. Thank You for everyone here. Lord, suit Your Word to that heart today in that way that You alone can do. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Well, as we look at these words, brothers and sisters, of Revelation 1, by way of a title, I give you this, A Portrait of Our King Priest. A portrait of our king priest. I think John gives us that here in Revelation 1. And in a real sense throughout the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. He's presented. And as He's presented, He is presenting as well things the Father gave Him to present to us who are His people, who are His churches. And we see that in the course even of what is said in chapter 1. As these seven churches in the area of Asia or Asia Minor, a Roman province of that day, we would know it to be in the area of western Turkey. Those churches are addressed as our Lord speaks to them concerning things that are yet to be, but also He speaks to them of things that are. And as He does that, He as well shows Himself to them and takes them back to things that have been. And in that look at our Savior this morning, that portrait of our king-priest, and we do see Him presented as king and as priest here, we could add prophet as well because of the fact that He is... Presenting to God's people, the churches, what God's will is and what God's will will be concerning the future, concerning what will come to pass. And so it is, in in a real sense, as many in theology have thought of our Lord as the Anointed One, Christos, Messiah. He's prophet, priest, and king. And we see Him in that way revealed here in a definite sense in chapter 1 of Revelation and throughout the book. And we can add throughout the Word of God. Amen. That's the way He's presented. And so we, we, we see Him in that way. And in looking at him, we we want to think about him in terms of his past work, his present work, and his prospective work. What will take place with regard to that? Now, that sounds like a lot, and it is. I've told you before, and I think Brother Tom was remembering this earlier this morning, that I can pack 20 minutes of preaching into 45 minutes to an hour real easy. (laughs) So some of you may be worried. I trust not, but I'll try not to uh, to, uh, give you too much fear. I I promise not to keep you a minute past one, okay? (laughs) I say that tongue firmly planted in cheek, okay? We want to think about our Savior, though, in terms of how he's presented here. Because one of the beauties of the book of Revelation is... As it's presented as a revelation of Jesus Christ, there is that sense in which there's a possessive character of that. It's his revelation which the Father gave to him to make known to his servants, and he sent and signified it to John. And so in that sense, there's, a, there's the, the subjective idea of the uh, of. The of. It's it's his revelation which he makes known, but in a real sense, it's also objective in that he is the one who's revealed throughout the book. We see him in his glory. We see him in something of that that marks him now in the glory that is his as the Messiah who has finished the work the father gave him to do. And yet there's a work, if you will, that remains to be done, which he's going to execute. I would have said this later, but since it comes to mind, I'm going to say it now. In Isaiah 53.10, the prophet Isaiah, as he presents to us a glorious picture of the Lord Jesus, God's suffering servant. He says this about him in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. There's the explanation of the death of Christ above all other explanations and reasonings. It pleased Jehovah to bruise his son. And then he says, he has put him to grief. And then he breaks out in prayer, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah looking at the crucifixion in that prophetic way that he does from chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, 12, in that portion. He, 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 he is, as he's viewed that breaks out in prayer, and he says to the Father, when When you make his soul an offering for sin, three things will happen. When that's taken place, he'll see a seed. Everyone the father gave him will come to him as our brother Elder Johnson read this morning from John 6. But not only that, he'll see a seed. He'll prolong his days. In other words, there will be an eternal life that is his forever as the mediator, the last Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven, but also the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will be the executor of the Father's will. He's going to carry out everything the Father's determined in history, in space, in time, in eternity. The Lord Jesus is going to accomplish that. And the book of Revelation is the capstone book of Holy Scripture. It's the book that brings to fulfillment before our eyes all of God's purposes for history. And what God begins in the seed plot book of the Bible, the capstone book of the Bible answers. And so we have, if you will, the bookends of Holy Scripture found in the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. And our Lord Jesus in that capacity as prophet, reveals these things to John because he is the one in whose hand the Father's will, the Father's pleasure will come to pass, will prosper. And we think about that, then we consider him in, in light of what John says. And I want to ask you now as we take look at this portrait of our, of our king priest, I want to ask you to think with me first of all about his past work his past work. I'd like to kind of pivot around verses 17 through 19 in our look at Revelation 1. Allow me to read those verses again because they provide I think a good a good peg to hang the chapter on. John writes, having seen the vision of the glorified Christ in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter." In those words, we really have a collapsed form of the book of Revelation, a a summarized version of it. We have a, a picture as well of our Lord Jesus in that past work that marks him, that present work, and that perspective, that future work that he will do. In the past work, I want you to think with me, first of all, about what he says concerning himself. In those words of Revelation, we read verses 1, 17 and 18. When he says to John, having fallen at his feet is dead. Remember who John is. At the last supper, John's the one who leaned on his breast. There on the chest of our Lord in that supper, you know. I like the way they ate ate supper, by the way. They ate back in those times, you know. They, They reclined at table. You and I eat chairs, eat in chairs. No, we don't eat chairs, excuse me. <laughs> we eat in chairs. And you know, there's a problem with chairs. Your stomach is compressed. You can't put as much in there as you'd like with that stomach compressed. When you're laying down, guess what? That stomach's not compressed. You get to enjoy more food, you know. More Jersey Mike's. <laughs> More roofs, Chris. <laughs> Mike and I know what that's about. Whatever you're eating, you can enjoy more. Well, they reclined at table, and John was leaning on the chest, the breast of our Lord, at that Last Supper. And yet, here he sees Christ in his glory, and what does he do? With an overwhelming sense of who he is, he falls at his feet, is dead. The Lord Jesus lays his right hand on him, and as he raises him, he says, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth. In those words, we see a declaration of who our Savior is in his person. He speaks with the words that he's already said back in verse 11. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Words that God himself declares in verse 8. Verse 8. Words that speak of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is himself absolute deity, absolute God. There's no one who can argue with the fact that he's genuine deity. There are those who come on knocking on your door Saturday morning and try, well, they're not now because of COVID. They used to, though. Worst time they could show up, toting their trash. They said they were awake and on the watchtower, but they weren't. Why? Because they deny the deity of Christ. They say he's a lesser God made by Jehovah. Don't believe that. The Lord Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He's the one who can say what Jehovah says in the Old Testament. He has the character that Jehovah has, even in this vision vision John sees. He's the one who's marked, thank God, by all the attributes and character of God, because he is God. If he weren't God, he could not be my Savior. I love the way Newton put it in one of his poems that I'm sure is set to music, a poem entitled, What Think Ye of Christ? Mr. Newton wrote in one of those stanzas, Some take him a creature to be, a man or an angel at most. Sure these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I. I dare not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I am sure he is God. In other words, I'm not going to trust a Christ who is not genuinely God. But thank God he is. He can say, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth. Or in the Greek text, the living one. That's the way God was referred to by the Jews in our Lord's day. The living one, blessed be he. And that's who Jesus is. In other words, he embodies himself full deity, absolute deity. And that's why Paul could say about him in Colossians 2, 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's our Lord. He's in this deity seen by John as he speaks of that hair that's white like wool. Uh, some of my hair is turning white. Most of it's turned loose, you know. I'm in recession, sadly. But, but, but the Lord Jesus had this hair white like wool. What's going on with that? Well, it's basically a throwback to Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel sees in his vision the Son of Man coming to receive the kingdom from the ancient of days, the ancient of days has hair that's white like wool. And what John is showing us is that the character the Father possesses of eternality, the Lord Jesus possesses as well. So it is that, again, His deity is affirmed. The fact of who He is in His actual person, that's why we've sung this morning, holy, 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 because not only is the Father God but the Lord Jesus is God, and the Spirit is God as well. We have one God in three persons. You can't wrap your mind around it and understand it fully. Somebody put it this way to fully understand the Trinity is to excuse me to to, 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 yeah, to fully understand the Trinity is to lose your mind and not believe it is to lose your soul. That's a pretty good balance there. I can't wrap my mind around the fact that he's one being, eternal being, and yet three distinct eternal persons within that one being. Three different centers of consciousness in the one God, and yet that's what the scriptures affirm, and we bow to it and believe it. And as such, our Lord Jesus is deity. And when we think about him in his past work, what is stated there in verse uh, 18 speaks of what he has done for us in the past. I am he that liveth, and was dead. I am, if you will, we could read it maybe more literally from the Greek Testament. I am the living one, and I became dead. Now and that's the mystery of the incarnation, as it's brought together before eyes here. Mr. Wesley caught it well in one of his hymns, And Can It Be. He said this, "'Tis mystery all, the mortal dies, who can explore this strange design, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. "'Tis mercy all, let earth adore, adore, let angel minds inquire no more.'" He expressed it well. "'Tis mystery all, the mortal dies.'" How can the eternal, the immortal God die? Well, there's only one way. And that is if somehow he could join himself to our nature so that a human nature that is subject to mortality and to death could be joined to his nature as God in such a way as that he could die. That's exactly what God's purpose was in redemption. The Son of God, by a virgin womb, became a man. He became a man sin apart, thank God. Unlike you and me, without, the, without all the accoutrements of sin that mark us, without all the depravity that we're born in because of the, the reality of Adam's sin and what has happened to us, we have to confess like David did. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and, and sin, in my mother conceive me? Have to say that, but he didn't. He couldn't because he was born by the power of the Spirit of God without the aid, instrumentality, or help of man. No human seed passing to the womb of Mary. He was virgin born and he was born in that way so that in his humanity, he could die death that was not his for us who would die death that would be forever. The death that would have been mine would have been eternal. It's called the second death later in Revelation 20. A death that is marked by eternal punishment in the lake of fire under the wrath of God. That's what my sin demanded. That's what my sin deserved. And that's what should have happened to David Morris. I should have licked up the flames of hell forever. But thank God I won't. I'm heaven bound and hell proof. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son has bought me. Because the living one became dead. The one who is, John speaks of him here when he hears that voice speaking to him. And he turns and he sees one like the son of man. he says there in those words of verse 12. Uh, excuse me. Verse twelve, is where he says he turned to see him. Verse thirteen is where he's called the Son of Man. But if you would notice in verse thirteen what is said about him as well as being the Son of Man, as John writes. Let me read verse twelve for you, just to join them together. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks one like unto the Son of Man clove with the garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. Here we see something of the reality of his past work in terms not only of him being son of man, but how as son of man he's clothed in his humanity. I like the phrase he's gird about the paps with a golden girdle. The King James catches well pretty well with the word paps. Because paps refer to breast. And that's what the Greek word is. It's, it's mastois in its uh, use here. And we know that word by medical terms, mastectomy. And I believe it's another point, uh, way of pointing out his deity. See, God is El Shaddai. The word Shaddai is believed to come from the word shad, which means breast. And that's how some have said he's the God who's more than enough. God the breasty one, that is God who has everything that man needs, all sufficient. But what's interesting is the garment that he has. He's clothed with a golden girdle about the paps, about the breast or chest. And he's got a garment, poderes in the Greek, that goes down to the foot. That word is used in this Old Testament Greek translation of the scriptures to refer to the high priest's garment in the book of Exodus. Exodus. Paderes. You see, the high priest wore a garment that went down to the foot and he had as well a belt that went around the chest. Why? Because those garments were garments of glory and beauty. They weren't garments that were used for everyday work because, you know, a man in those times wore a belt or girdle about the thighs. Why? So that when he had to get down to real labor, he could pull up his robe, stick it in his belt, and his legs would be free for movement. The high priest didn't wear a garment like that because his garments of glory and beauty were intended to be his as he worked and labored there in in the holy place. And that's what Christ has on here. But when we think about the Old Testament background, there was one time in the year when the high priest laid aside those garments of glory and beauty. And in, in Leviticus chapter 16, we read about it. On what the Jews called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would lay aside his garments of glory and beauty and he would put on a simple linen tunic, a white tunic, and simple linen white breeches. And he would, with those clothes, those garments, go in to the holiest, the most holy place to make atonement. Now, let's connect that to our Savior and his past work. Do you get the picture? From old eternity, our Lord Jesus had on garments of glory and beauty. But oh, bless his name. One day he laid aside the garments of glory and beauty. He didn't cease to be God, no. But he laid aside the prerogatives of glory that were his. And he put on the simple linen, if you will, of a pure, spotless, unsullied humanity. And what did he do in that? He made atonement for his people. He went, brothers and sisters, to the holy place, bringing better blood than the blood of bulls and goats, bringing his own blood. And by that blood, I'm cleansed. By that blood, I'm saved. I'm glad this morning for what the blood of Jesus Christ does for sinners. <laughs> oh, Try not to get too happy, y'all. <laughs> but it's mighty hard. <laughs> oh, what can wash away my sin? Oh, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's his past work, but let me tell you, he's not wearing those simple linen garments anymore. He's got on his garments of glory and beauty now. Mm-hmm. For the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Mm-hmm. And brothers and sisters, as Mr. Pitt wrote in that great poem about him, the maker of the universe, his man was for man was made a curse. He said in that last stanza. The throne on which he now appears was his from everlasting years, but a new glory crowns his brow and every knee to him shall bow. Hallelujah. Mm. That's our savior. And in his past work, we see him as Savior who came. He came on a saving mission. He came to die. He came to lay down his life. And on behalf of his sheep, he, the shepherd, is going to bring everyone home to the Father. We see that in John 10. We see that in Luke 15. We see that in the wealth of Scripture that speaks of him in the accomplishment of his death. And we rejoice in that. And in that past work we see the reality of what he has done john as he mentions the the triune God in the opening of the book in those salutations from verse 4 on. Uh, You you may not have noticed it, but in verse 4 as he speaks to the seven churches, writes to them, he sends grace and peace from the Father, him which was, which is, and is to come. Then he mentions the Holy Spirit. Things a little bit out of order here it seems. He mentions the seven spirits which are before the throne of God. And then he mentions and from Jesus Christ. And he calls him the first spirit. The faithful witness, excuse me, and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. And John can't mention him without having a praise moment. And he breaks out and says unto him that loved us. And washed us from our sin in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God, and our Father unto him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. That's what happens because of what he did. He has made us who were under wrath to now be kings and priests to God. And we have to say, bless God for his past work. But John also sees him in a present work here. Oh, by the way, I, I better not leave this out. I think I've touched on it because of what he's wearing now, but he got up. He did. <laughs> yes. Can't leave that out, kind of Elder Johnson? Because Christ says, notice again, verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead and what? Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I like that word behold. We don't use it much today, you know. If I'm riding down the road with Terry and I see somebody in their speedos, you know, jogging, I don't say, behold, Terry. I say, check it out. Well, that's what the word behold means. Check it out. The Lord says, I'm the living one. I became dead. But check it out. I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. And so it is. We have to think in terms of him and his past work as getting up. Death cannot keep his prey, Mr. Lowry wrote, Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose. And we rejoice in that reality. But we we think about his present work, brothers and sisters. And we see as John sees him, again, going back to those words of of verse 13 and, and tied in with what we see in the words of verse 20. John writes that the son of man is clothed, but he's, he's there in the midst of the what? The seven candlesticks. And what are those candlesticks? Well, we're told what those candlesticks are in verse 20. They're the seven churches. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is in his present work walking among his people walking among his churches. Now he does that by his spirit. Yes, he sent his spirit into the world to do that, but he's walking among his churches. I've enjoyed being with you this morning, GCA. I always do. I love the worship here. And you you always mess me up, though, because I'm supposed to speak, and it's hard to speak after all those tears cause the mucus to flow inside, you know. But it seems that's always what happens but, you know, it's not just you. It's because someone is walking among his churches. Amen. Amen. Oh, bless his name. He's in our midst. He's among us. And, and that's what we see here in this picture John gives. And not only that, the seven stars, I believe they're angelic representatives of, of, the, of the churches. And that, that's, there's debate about that. But in any event, he's got them in his hand that speaks of the reality, brothers and sisters, of how precious his people are to him. He has us in his hand, and he also is walking among us. And as he walks among us, it's interesting what he's doing. Candlesticks or lampstands, lamps of that day. They had wicks, you remember, that extended into a bowl. And from that bowl, all oil was drawn up. And the wick would burn. But sometimes the wicks need trimming. Sometimes there are elements that have to be uh, dealt with. And in chapters 2 and 3, that's what the Lord Jesus is doing among these seven churches among whom he walks. He's telling some of them, repent. Remember, he tells Ephesus, he says, I have this against you. He names what they're doing good. And then he says, I have this against you because you've left your first love. In other words, you don't have that first sweetheart love you had for me one time. And you better you better restore that first love or I'm going to come and take away your candlestick. What's he doing? He's, in his present work, trimming the wicks of his people so that we might do what? Shine his lights in the world. So that we might burn brightly for his glory. Is he serious about that? Ask the Ephesians. Is he serious about that? Listen to what he says to the other churches. There are only two that he only has commendation for. The rest of them he tells them what's wrong. I'm glad he loves us enough to tell us what's wrong. He says that in his last letter to the church at Laodicea, the one that thought she was wealthy. You see, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. When it had an earthquake, major earthquake, about the time of John's writing, and Rome wanted to help it, the Roman government, they refused Rome's aid. They said, no, thank you, we can do it ourselves. And sadly, apparently the church had become more like a thermometer instead of thermostat. They were registering the temperature of the culture, not changing it by God's grace. So the Lord Jesus says, as many as I love, I'll rebuke and chasten. I'm glad for his present work among his churches. I'm glad that he loves us enough to say, David, deal with that. Sometimes when I hear God's Word preached, I have to say, "O oh, me, instead of amen. <laughs> but I'm glad because it's the Spirit of God working through His Word in the hearts of His people so that we hear His voice. And I want to hear my shepherd's voice because Jesus said about His sheep, my sheep what? Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. One mark of a true person, know, a person truly knowing the Lord, is that they hear the voice of the shepherd and they follow that voice. That's what marks his sheep is. I heard Henry Mahan say years ago, Christ's sheep have an ear mark and a hoof mark. They hear him and they follow him. Now, we don't do it perfectly granted, but that's the tenor of our lives because of what grace has done in us and the change that grace makes. And so his present work, brothers and sisters, we see in respect to what he is doing as he walks among us. And it's interesting how the vision of chapter one that John sees of Christ is in many places taken up in those letters of the churches as Christ displays himself having eyes that burn like fire, having feet that are like feet that burnish bronze in the furnace of fire. And he uses those details to speak of himself as he speaks to the churches, particularly in terms, again, of his rebuke and his chastening. Sometimes I need his rebuke let me rephrase that many times i need his rebuke i'm glad for his purging work you remember in john 15 what he spoke about when he talked about the father being the husbandman him being the true vine and us being the branches and he says every branch in me the father prunes it purges it i need pruning I got a lot of wild growth on me. I need pruning. And he's there walking among his people, among his churches to do that. And that's what John sees about his present work, but there's also that prospective work, that that future work that that we see as well. And I, I I ask your attention to verse 19 here to notice that with me, please. as John sees the many things that mark the revelation, and it begins with this vision of our Lord, as John sees that, the Lord Jesus gives him these instructions in verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. That's a simple statement. It's one that's often overlooked by students of the Revelation. I dare say that Pastor Jim didn't overlook it. As he and I, we have a lot of areas of agreement in our, our understanding of Scripture. These words, write the things which thou have seen, could be understood in the Greek Testament as this after that. Both, or that is, the things which you've seen, uh, uh, the, both the things that which are and the things which are hereafter. Now, our King James version, as much as I dearly love it, uh, may not be as clear on us on hereafter. The Greek phrase is metatauta. If you wanted to translate it more literally, and the King James does this because of the fact that in those days they kind of combined adjectives and other things, excuse me, prepositions and other things, therewith and thereafter and so forth, after these things. The word metatauta is after these things. So let's read it like that just a moment. Some of you are already reading it like that because you have a more recent translation. Write the things which thou hast seen and that is and the things which are and the things which shall be after these things. Now what does these things refer to? You see that's a relative pronoun. uh, it, 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 it It has an antecedent. What is the antecedent of That that marks these things. Well, the things that are. Okay, stay with me on this point of grammar. Don't lose lose me, please, because, you know, I I know everybody loves grammar like I do, you know. (laughs) Jeff, what are you laughing about, brother? (laughs) Uh, The things that are and the things that are after these things. These things refers to the things that are. So we have the things that are and the things that are after the things that are. So let's establish what the things that are are, okay? The things that are are Christ walking among his churches. What happens after that? Well, after the things that are, we have something that really marks a time of world judgment and God renewing his mercies to Israel. Well, how do you know that, Brother David? Well, because in chapter 4, verse 1, John is told this. Listen to these words. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which shall be, or will be, must be, hereafter. Now, there's that same phrase, hereafter, in our King James that we have in verse nineteen of chapter one, the things which will be meta, a Greek again in Greek, meta tauta after these things. John saying, "The Lord called me, come up to heaven, and I'll show you things that will be after these things." In other words, at the end of chapter three, Christ walking among his churches in his present work shifts to his prospective work, his future work. When he's no longer walking among his churches, why? Well, the obvious answer is they've been removed. Why have they been removed? Because prior to the tribulation, the Lord Jesus is going to come back for his people. And as he removes us from this earth, the things that are after the things that are will begin. Now, there's some people who believe that we're going to be here during the tribulation. And to that I say, now listen to this, to that I say, how can the things that are still be going on when the things that are after the things that are have begun? Did you catch
1: that? <laughs>
2: I'm going to say it again. How can the things that are be going on when the things that are after the things that are had begun? Because if they're after, then the things that are can't be going on because the things that are after the things that are have begun. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. You just got to follow it. You got the things that are now looking from my perspective, right, left to right, because you know, I'm standing in front of you. You do it your way. You've got the things that are and the things that are after these things that are with their after the things that are, how can the things that are still be continuing? if the things that are and we I believe have good reason to understand Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is Christ walking among his churches then we have the things that are after those things that means the things that are have ended when the things that are after the things that are begin in other words we're removed why? because God's program with regard to Israel and the nations will recommence Chapter 4, verse 1, John's called up to heaven to see the things that will be after these things. That's the prospective work of Christ. And what is that? Well, chapters 4 and 5 presented in a glorious vision of God. Mr. Heber that our brother Steve referred to in Holy, Holy, Holy. Mr. Heber had before him in part the vision of, a, of, of Isaiah 6, but also Revelation 4 and 5. And in Revelation 4 and 5, John sees the throne, sees God who sits on the throne, sees the seven spirits. But interestingly, in chapter 4, somebody's missing. There's a a notable absence. You don't see the son. Where is he? John sees in the right hand, chapter 5, verse 1, of him that sits on the throne a book. And, 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 And the question goes out as a mighty angel asks, who's worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? No one's found worthy. And John weeps much because no one's found worthy. And then one of the elders, the 24 elders, you see in chapter 4 comes and says, John, stop your crying. Dry your tears. The lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's prevailed. He's overcome to open the book and to loose the seals. And John says, I turned and I saw in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the elders, as though he'd been there all along, but John had missed him a lamb as it had been slain. And the lamb goes and takes the book and all heaven breaks loose. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. All heaven breaks out into praise. Thou art worthy. And in chapter 6, what does he do? He begins to open the seals. What's he doing? In his prospective work that he will accomplish, he's going to move history to its predestined end, its determined end. What is that end? The goal of history, brothers and sisters, is not this earth planet burning out like the um, evolutionists say. The role of human history is not so that somehow we'll destroy ourselves. The goal of human history is that Jesus shall reign one day on earth. Hallelujah. And as Mr. Watts wrote so well in that hymn, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. And in his prospective work, Christ is the executor of the Father's will. The one in whose hands the pleasure of the Lord will prosper. He's going to bring all of that to pass. He's going to accomplish it for the glory of his Father. And when all is said and done one day, after that great right, great right throne judgment that Revelation 20 depicts, and there's a new heaven and new earth, Paul puts it this way in First Corinthians 15, 28. Then shall the Son deliver up the kingdom to the Father that God might be all in all. In other words, in his prospective work, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring history to its proper conclusion. And what God did in the beginning, he's going to bring to pass in the end. Elder Ward used to put it this way. He said, I love the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two because there's no devil in them. (laughs) He also told about how, when he was a boy and he'd buy a comic book, he'd always read the last chapter and then go back and read the comic book. He wanted to make sure his hero came out. <laughs> and brothers and sisters, I've read the last chapter, and you know what? Our hero comes out. Amen. He wins. The prospective work of Christ is he is going to bring history, this world, the cosmos, to its ultimate conclusion, and God's purposes shall stand. That's our Savior. I trust you know Him today. I trust you've found Him precious and lovely to you. But if you haven't, He stands ready to save all who come to the Father by Him. Today, if you've not come by Him, I'd say to you, run to Christ right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And if you know Him, May you and I go out and live for him. What else is there in this world worth living
3: for? Mm.
2: Oh, everything sweet, everything rich, everything real in life is only so in relation to him. I bless his name for being such a great savior. May we, as we have looked at this portrait of our priest, our king, may we brothers and sisters love him more, And live more for his glory as those who know him.